The international break is over and club football returns this weekend with two stonking derbies in the Premier League and plenty more going on. I'm Dan Burke, this is the One Football Podcast and I'm joined as always by Matt Froelich. Good afternoon. And Thomas Stockting. Hello, hello. How are we both doing? It is, of course, the North London derby. Thomas is wearing his Arsenal shirt. Matt's a Spurs fan. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not feeling so confident. I feel like this is going to be just one big hammering session on Spurs from Thomas. Well, you can oh, give as good as you get, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say quite the contrary. Matt's the Matt's the face of one football video. He's far more articulate than I am, so uh, I'm I'm ready. I'm ready to defend myself. Well, there is about four thousand miles separating you as well, so it's not going to get physically violent if uh, if it all kicks off at least. Yeah, we're Maybe. modern day football fans. We're only verbally violent. We're not we're not physically violent anyway. Yeah, we, we ain't going to back it up in real life. <laughs> Keyboard warriors over here. Well, there's also the Manchester Derby this weekend. We're going to talk about all this later on, but uh, yeah, I'm going to be batting uh, City's corner on my own. I mean, you, you can you can both stick up for Man United if you want, but uh, you know, I don't think you're going to want to, are you? Really? Yeah, there, there's not much competition though. It's just it's too easy to shit on United if you're a City fan. Mm. At least me and Thomas have got a little bit of back and forth going on. True that, true that. Potentially. (laughs) Well, if you are affected by anything that we say on the podcast today or uh, you want to get any questions into us or any abuse or anything like that, remember you can do so by emailing us on podcast at onefootball.com. You can also tweet me at FussballDan. You can tweet Matt at Matt underscore Froelich. And you can tweet Thomas. What's your at on Twitter, Thomas? Uh, It's at Stockting. So a Christmas sock with a T after the K (laughs) underscore 22. There you go. There you go. We've got a, uh, a question. It was a bit, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a question coming up a little bit later on, so uh, that's something to look forward to. Uh, yeah, we are going to look ahead to the weekend in a bit, but first of all, uh, we do have some small matters of international football, uh, some interesting stuff happened this week, actually. So let's dive into that. We'll start with England's 3-3 draw with Germany. We were talking a lot on the podcast on Monday, Matt, about England's woes, England's problems, uh, Gareth Southgate and all that kind of thing. I mean, it looked like it was getting even worse for Southgate at one point when England were 2-0 down. Then they come back to make it 3-2. Then they, they end up drawing in the end. What was your take on the performance? Did the nature of that comeback maybe buy Southgate a bit of goodwill or are England still a bit of a problem for you? I, I mean, it would be a bit weird if they were having a meeting and he was like, ah, oh, but don't forget that 15 minutes against Germany where we were good. <laughs> like, I'm not sure it buys him goodwill. Unfortunately, it seems to be a, a glimpse of what an England team could do but that just won't be able to do, never mind for a whole tournament. I mean, not even for, you know, a whole match. Uh, They just seem incapable of putting that together. And I I think, I I don't want to kind of make it sound like I'm completely anti-Southgate because I think he's done very well as England manager in certain cases, but that seemed to be the crowd getting, maybe getting onto the players a little bit. Uh, The substitutions were good, but they rode a wave of momentum and it just seemed to be one of those football games where the tides turn and you get a bit of, yeah, like I said, you get a bit of momentum behind you and wasn't necessarily that on, you know, whenever they scored the first goal, they, the England players were like, right, let's do this for Gareth. Like (laughs) we're all in it for him. Like it was, it was sort of, that's just the way that a bit of a crazy game ebbed and flowed towards the end and it wasn't necessarily like yeah this is what this is what we can do for him it was kind of a heat of the moment thing um and I still think it was exciting don't get me wrong it was an exciting what was it 20-25 minutes I was you know going mad in the living room <laughs> um but it doesn't forgive the previous hour before that or the performance against Italy or any of the performances to be honest in this in this year so um 
yeah, it was a, a sort of brief flash of excitement, to be honest. Yeah. How, how confident are you feeling as an Englishman at the moment going into the World Cup, Thomas, after the way England have been, have been playing lately? Uh, honestly, my confidence hasn't really wavered in up or down. As, as Matt says, like, I'm not anti-Southgate by any means, um, but he's not... He's never put an England side out into to play in a way that's ever overly impressed me, taken my breath away or anything of the sorts. But you look back to the Euros, all of our games and scores were pretty close. The only bigger margin was the 4-0 win over Ukraine. I mean, we beat Germany 2-0, but that was two goals in the final 15 minutes. Um, and historically, throughout the very early days of the Nations League, it's not like we've ever put in really convincing performances to begin with. It's, it's still, I feel, at this stage of a tournament where... Um, professional athletes aren't all getting up for it on a competitive level either so how I'm feeling ahead of the tournament I mean England were leaking some goals ahead of 2018 and 2020 and we ended up having a sure defense and now we can't score ahead of 2022 so who knows Harry Kane top scorer 10 goals (laughs) yeah I'm wondering with these recent Nations League games you know the 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 point of the season that they've come uh the, the kind of Friendly's in all but name, aren't they, really? You know, there is a competitive element to this, but I don't get the impression that the players are taking it that seriously, really. Should we be reading anything into anybody, really, at this stage, do you think, Matt, or is it all just a bit academic? You know what I've realised that's quite funny is that if the players aren't really that bothered, right, for England, they say, like you say, it's a friendly in everything but name, they're going to be even less bothered now that they're relegated and technically <laughs> facing worse opponents. Imagine if England keep getting relegated, right, and they're in Group D against, uh, I mean, I don't want to, I can't remember, or insult any countries, but, you know, other Liechtenstein and San Marino or something. <laughs> they're going to care even less than when they were in Group A playing Italy and Germany every other international break. So it's clearly that the top's not interesting, so the rest of it's not going to be interesting either. And I think... Especially uh, at this point in the season, there's such a big, I don't know, there's there's just such a big emphasis as there always is, especially in the Premier League on club football, that this just seems to be completely unnecessary. And the amount of injuries, which we'll get onto for both North London and Manchester Derby, <laughs> is astonishing. Like The amount of injuries that players have got is a joke. Touching on Matt's point there a little bit, uh, I gave a little bit too much love there, I think, to a North London striker wearing white two seconds ago about how many goals he <laughs> might score at the World Cup. Uh, we all know that the relegation in the Nations League means that Harry Kane's going to get to like pad his stats and uh, climb up the, uh, <laughs> the rankings of England top scorers. So we know he's going to be loving that. Yeah, but he's even further away from winning a trophy than he's ever been. If you look at it another way, isn't he really? You so- can, if you win Group B... <laughs> Actually, to be fair, I saw this the other day. I I saw this the other day. He has the most competitive goals for England, right? Um, Like Harry Kane, he genuinely has the most competitive goals, like and goals in tournaments. I think so. Yeah, it's not even like he stat pads in the shit friendlies. (laughs) He generally scores in the actual. I think he's generally regarded as a good player, isn't he, Harry Kane? I think we can can all agree on that point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Harry, who is uh, not generally regarded as a good player. That was a great segue, wasn't it? Very unpleasant, oh, that one. It. <laughs> it's Mr. Harry Maguire, who had a, another very poor time of it in this game, giving away a penalty, giving away possession for the second goal, I think it was. Uh, not playing well at all. You know, he's going to struggle to get back into Man United's team. I think he's injured at the moment, perhaps mercifully for him, because uh, he probably would have been watching the game from the bench this weekend. I mean, he's getting pelters left, right and centre, Thomas. Do you, do you feel a bit sorry for him at this point at all? I mean, even me as a Man City fan feels a little bit sorry for the guy. I mean, on a human level, how can you not? You know, I mean, 
I don't know. We're all we're all young professionals. Surely we've all been at a point in our careers where we feel like we haven't been performing that well at our jobs and feeling a little bit of heat about all of it. And, you know, maybe you see someone else not performing too well at their job. And there's always a little bit of like, ah, oh, wish I could help that guy out a little bit more. But I don't feel like anyone's really helping Harry Maguire out that much. Take him out the firing line, perhaps. But also an £80 million defender playing for Manchester United. How do you help him out at that point? You're not going to send him out on loan, are you? So what do you do? Do you just drop him completely? And does that affect morale? I don't know. So, um, yeah, I do feel sorry for him. And I do hope that Manchester United are maybe focusing on some individual uh, training, both in terms of a playing ability, but also in terms of being able to handle the mental side of it, because he's clearly every mistake, every little foot out of place is being scrutinised tenfold in a way that perhaps other players it's not being done. And um, I mean, I thought in that first half, he, he wasn't terrible. I thought he actually put in a, a pretty solid performance at the back. And then, you know, he just goes and kicks Musiala and then everything else comes flooding back in, doesn't mm. it? Yeah, I thought England looked pretty sturdy until Stones went off, actually. I thought it unravelled quite quite badly after he went off. I wonder if he's the sort of calming influence alongside Maguire sometimes. I mean, you look at Maguire's career, you know, he was he was good at Leicester. There's no doubt about that. He was he was good for England at the last World Cup. Uh, he, he's got City and United bidding for him. He moves to United for £80 million or thereabouts. He doesn't do brilliantly at United, but he, he gets made captain. You know, his career's on the up and up and it's just, it's just unraveled for him so quickly, Matt. Is he a bad player or is he in a bad moment? Can he get it back? I don't think he's a bad player in a... Uh- at risk of basically sounding like a very boring person on the internet, whereas, you know, you're supposed to come up with all these sort of outrageous comments and this absolute nonsense about he's the worst player ever, I could do better, this, that and the other. He's captain of Manchester United, he was captain of Manchester United. He's obviously not a bad footballer. Like, someone's decided to invest 80 million in him. I think Thomas is right. Everything gets scrutinised. You know, if you turned around and said he had a good game, up until the Musial point, it may very well be the actual truth. You know, he, he can have decent football matches. It's just that at this point, you don't really remember them and the mistakes are sort of costing costing his side greatly. Um, I don't think he's a bad player. I do think Southgate may have stuck with him a little bit too long. Um, because Manchester United have obviously taken that decision to, to drop him. So it kind of makes sense to Southgate would as well. I think being injured helps Southgate's cause weirdly enough because I feel like it's another um, it's another sort of reason that Southgate can give for not selecting him. He'll, he'll select him in the squad, but maybe not in the starting eleven because before when Southgate says, "Oh, I only pick players in form," right? He's gone back on it. Mm. He's got, he clearly hasn't picked players in form based on the last thing in the squad. So now. He, he can use that and say, ah, Maguire was injured and out of the team, this, that and the other, because if he's injured now, the chance of him getting back fit and starting for United before the World Cup, I mean, maybe he'll play the last two or three games mm. if fit, but but who knows? I think it's difficult. But no, he's he's definitely not a bad footballer. Um, I just think his, his weaknesses get highlighted a lot because they make... Because, you know, they usually have such a big impact on games. Like when he did that, when he gave the ball away to Musiala and fouled him, I literally just head in hands. Yeah. I was like, may I just, it, it couldn't have happened to anyone worse on the pitch. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna like, to take a contrary route quickly to Matt and actually make a, make a bit of a hot take and uh, say that Harry Maguire is just England and Manchester United's version of Rob Holding, a very solid <laughs> defender if you play him in the heart of a back three. 
don't 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 isolate him on the wing. You don't want to see Harry Maguire in a position where he's essentially playing left back. And you also Harry Maguire is a great defender when you're attacking, utilizing set pieces, and when your back's up against the wall. If a team's pegged you in and there's not much gap between the not many gaps between the lines and there's crosses coming in, Harry Maguire's your guy in the center of the box. He's going to get his head to things. He's going to push people out of the way. You'll push his own players out of the way to get there, but he's getting to that ball. However, when you're going to play a progressive style of play, if you're going to play a possession style of play, is Harry Maguire the guy you want on the on the ball as Matt just said, giving that ball away to Musiala before fouling him. I mean, I know it's the classic comments, but Ben White, Tamori, all these players, John Stone's mm. another one who's a good ball-playing centre-back and progressive. If we're going to play with the ball and look to be playing out from the back, you need players that are going to be confident to do that. And I think isolating Harry Maguire in the left side of a centre-back position is wrong, first of all. And also, I think, unless we're sitting back and defending, I think he should be on the bench for England. And if we're 1-0 up in the 80th minute, you bring him on in the heart of the defence and you shut up shop it's the same thing with Eric Dyer. have him in the middle of a back three but either side you're asking for trouble mm. and I guess maybe that was one of the things right he was trying to shoehorn Dyer and Maguire into the yeah. team in both of these games just play four at the back man that's that would be my <laughs> my solution like I don't get it I don't get this obsession with it yeah. where he's sort of gone to four at the back and then gone back to the, the back three weird uh, yeah on, on Ben White do you think maybe this is a chance for him to force his way into Southgate's reckoning because Southgate doesn't seem to fancy him does he I don't know I, I would like to think so personally as, a, as an Arsenal fan I think uh, I think he is actually a very underrated central defender and defender in general he's put in, in quite a job at right back for us this season which is a position out of his comfort zone and you can go oh but he's not even starting centre-back for Arsenal well we've got William Saliba who is let's not I'm not going to dive too much into <laughs> Arsenal right now but best young centre-back in the world uh, period, no debate. Um, so yeah, I think, but I think with like John Stones coming off with that injury concern, you've got Harry Maguire's injury concern. I don't know, the door may open, but he doesn't really seem to be in Gareth Southgate's ideas and plans, does he? Mm. I feel like he may be just one ring too low on the ladder to be able to, you know, come into the World Cup squad at this stage. Yeah, yeah. I think we've all seen that uh, that viral video of the the guy doing the tactical analysis for his girlfriend's benefit uh, that was going around the other yeah. day. Very good analysis, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I was with him all the way until he said, "How is this guy a professional footballer?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's a bit harsh." Like he's yeah, yeah. That, this is what I mean. Yeah, it's not that bad. Comes in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's 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 a bit it's a bit too much. I mean, I, I remember you used to say that about Titus Bramble. Do you remember? <laughs> Like do, he would yeah. do some. He would do some of the most comical things to the point where I'd really consider his profession. And then I'd be like, "Nah, he's a professional footballer in the Premier League. He's obviously not that bad. He just has a habit of doing some only Titus Bramble things." I met a Newcastle yeah. fan once who called him Tithead Bumble, so that tells you how <laughs> how they thought about him. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, we were just being nice about blast it. from the past. There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We were talking a bit on the podcast the other day about Trent Alexander-Arnold's, uh, you know, lack of uh, reckoning. Oh God, stop it, stop it, I'm leaving, I'm leaving. <laughs> okay, sorry, continue, continue. Yeah, Trent, Trent Alexander-Arnold's uh, place in the, the England uh, constellation, as it were. Uh, we had a great question in from a listener, David Aslan writes in and said, let's say it's the World Cup in the knockout rounds and England are drawing 1-1 late in the game, there's a counter-attack Timo Werner is racing towards goal and has one defender between him and the goalie. You have to choose between Trent Alexander-Arnold or Harry Maguire to stop Timo Werner's counter-attack. Who are you picking? I'll let you go first on that one, Thomas. 
Oh, easy. Harry Maguire. Trent Alexander-Arnold would stop running. Maguire at least would take him down, he, take one from the team. I mean, Trent Alexander-Arnold wouldn't be back there, would he? That's, the, that's the, I guess, the point of him is that he'd be up on the right wing somewhere. Even even if he would, though, the second team of Werner gets three and a half yards in front of him, he'll just stop running. Mm. <laughs> I would go... Uh, to be honest, I'd just let Werner shoot. He's not <laughs> yeah. scoring anyway, so... <laughs> Makes no big difference. <laughs> Funnily enough, though, I was actually just thinking I would 100% agree with Thomas. I don't think Trent would track back, and I think Maguire would absolutely take him out, even if he got nowhere near the ball. So, yeah, yeah that, was probably, that probably wasn't quite the um, interesting answer that, was it David, uh, was hoping for. Yeah. What about you, Dan? I'd probably say Maguire as well, just to sort of take him out. But also, yeah, if, if Werner was through one goal, I wouldn't be exactly there, you know, head in hands. I'd be sort of thinking he's probably going to miss anyway, but... Yeah, exactly. That was the impression I got Maybe from watching Germany it. the other night, despite the fact they scored three goals and Guy Havertz had a pretty good game. I was like, where's their striker? Like, they've not got anyone at the moment, have they, really, that can kind of yeah, it's can so be relied odd. upon? And yeah. his, return, his return to Leipzig hasn't been spectacular either, so... No, no. Yeah. Lis- you, listening, to, listening to the North American commentary of it, it was a terrible pun, which is uh, obviously Germany are really lacking a closer in front of goal. But... Um, well, I mean, he'd still score more. I would like to say I'm above that kind of tomfoolery, but I'm definitely not. So yeah, I've probably done many, many worse puns on this podcast in my time. So yeah, fair enough. <laughs> well, a team who have probably too many options in attack, if anything, and yet can't seem to get any of them to work, are Portugal. They were beaten 1-0 by Spain in the Nations League uh, the other night. Spain going through to the finals, Portugal not. What's What's wrong with Portugal, do you think, Matt? Why are they so bad considering all those players, you know, you take your pick of any of any of the sort of front line they can pick the midfield. It's an incredible group of players, and yet there's just nothing there, is there? Yeah, I, I was reading all of the fallout from their um, from the from the game the other day from their defeat to Spain. A lot of certainly online, a lot of the fans put it at the door of the coach mm. of, of Fernando Santos, basically making the wrong decision at the wrong time uh, in a game where they have so much attacking talent and they should be on the front foot. They were quite defensive. And then when they should have been defensive to see the game out as it got towards the latter stages, he bought on Vitinho and went a bit more attacking. And it's sort of like, why didn't you do that at the beginning? Um, and I, I would say it's a difficult job when you've got to pick from so many different forward players. And maybe it's something that he also struggles with, except he's the one person that shouldn't <laughs> be struggling to pick a team because that's what he's paid to do. Uh, been in the job a long time as well now, though. You should. Yeah. And obviously he won them the Euros. Yeah. You know, back in, in, in France 2016, but I just, it seems to me, I think he struggles, but I also think the players, it's a very unique group of players where, to me, they're almost, certainly attacking-wise, the majority of them are very much in unique systems at club football. Um, the way that uh, someone like Diogo Jota plays at Liverpool and the way that Bernardo Silva fits into the Manchester City team and the way that Ronaldo does or doesn't play at Manchester United. Um, and then you've got Rafa Leao who, who didn't actually come on. It, it all seems to be they're, they're sort of the, the flag bearers or the water carriers for their own team. They're brilliant at what they do at club level, but fitting all of these pieces together at international level is something so, so difficult. And you've seen it at United with Bruno and Ronaldo. For whatever reason, when Ronaldo joined, Bruno Fernandes kind of fell off a bit in terms of the numbers. And you're seeing it at uh, international level as well. Yeah, maybe it is just that case that there are almost too many stars 
and too many individuals where as a team they're not quite clicking because it's odd because on paper their squad is unbelievable mm. you know they should probably be favorites for the world cup on paper really yeah you but, would yeah. say on paper yeah but yeah. it just it doesn't seem to come together and game eight played on paper boring yeah it's exactly. played on grass maybe it's a bit boring <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes synthetic turf yes sometimes 90s yeah. loftus road <laughs> but, <yeah. laughs> or sometimes sand if you're a fan of 90s stanford bridge that's a callback to podcast <laughs> from a few weeks ago yeah <laughs> oh yeah very nice very nice yeah they should be better but they're not yeah. Do you think, Thomas, that Portugal maybe have the same problem that Man United do when it comes to Cristiano Ronaldo, that maybe it's time to phase him out and there's just a bit too much kind of emotion there that he has to play almost and is kind of holding them back a bit? Or is that unfair? No, I don't think it's unfair at all. And I think even I personally struggle with it. I mean, even as an Arsenal fan, I grew up loving Cristiano Ronaldo. I mean, I grew up in the south of France, so I didn't have like the tribalistic feeling around the English Premier League team. So there was... The love for Cristiano Ronaldo and what he managed to do, especially sharing the namesake of obviously the famous R9. It, even for me, it's like, it's really sad to sort of see where he is in global football now and the feeling that he is just sort of clinging on. Um, I think the poetic end would have not been going to Manchester United and it would have been returning to Sporting Lisbon and, you know, rocking up 30 goals in, in the Portuguese league for a, for a season or two and then hanging up his boots. That would have been a lovely end to it. But in the way that someone like Wayne Rooney, for example, at the latter stages of his career, adapted his game and dropped in, became more of a team player and a playmaker. You look what Lionel Messi is doing. He's gone off and become a different style of player once again at PSG. Whereas Ronaldo, it just feels like, well, he went from the wing to a, a mobile striker to now a not very mobile striker. And it's like, well, you're just like, you're going down in quality every single time, whereas mm. like other players like Messi have been able to reinvent themselves. So yeah, perhaps he is part of the issue, but touching on what you and Matt were saying, like your best 11 players isn't your best 11. And it's the coach's job to find the best 11. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that was the first time I've probably ever watched Ronaldo where I thought, wow, you look a bit slow, a little bit, a little bit creaky mm. now. Like, you know, he's 37. It's, it's understandable. Time waits for no man. It's going to come from eventually. Mm. Um, I certainly I'm don't share your sense. I certainly don't share your sentiment about uh, admiring him, though. I'm very glad to see his downfall. <laughs> Especially after he went back to United, because I thought that was going to be the romantic end to his career, where he'd go there and you know win the Premier League with them or whatever, and maybe you still will. Who knows? I shouldn't tempt fate in that regard. Uh, another player who is... Uh, another Liverpool player, in fact, who, who's weirdly kind of out of the international picture for his uh, nation is Thiago, uh, not getting called up for Spain. That's a weird one, isn't it, Matt? He seems like he'd be sort of a player that you would definitely call up if you were Luis Enrique. Uh, yeah, you'd think so. I, I don't know. Maybe he's sort of looking towards the future and basically doing what Portugal can't, which is letting go of the past and, and bringing in some new midfielders. I think Barca, uh, Barca, even Spain, do have some very good <laughs> midfielders uh, from Barcelona. I jumped ahead of my own thought there. Six uh, from one half a dozen of the other. Yeah, <laughs> with, with, with the obvious talent coming through, you know, the likes of uh, Pedri and Gavi. Um, they just seem to be kind of not really in the need for a player who's getting a bit older or who's injury prone. Um, I don't know, maybe I'm reading a bit too much into it, but would you rely on a player who could be injured between now and and the World Cup? You know, I, I imagine if like that was your, you know, the, especially the way that Thiago plays, the way that Spain play, you'd think it would be him or Rodri. You wouldn't imagine that they would both play alongside each other. Well, I would definitely have Rodri. They could. <laughs> I love Rodri. Yeah, you'd so. have Rodri, but 
but but if if you had like right, this is our guy at the base of the midfield. This is the passer. He makes the team tick. He is out everything. But there's a seventy percent chance he'll be injured between now and the World Cup. Mm. It might not be the best thing to to build upon. Um, you know, and I guess Luis Enrique wants reliable players. Having said that, from a quality perspective, when he does play. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit baffling because... Well, it seems to be Soler, Soler and Koke who are getting in ahead of him, really, which I don't think either of them are as good as he is. But, yeah. yeah, no. But I, again, they are... I mean, Koke defines Mr. Reliable, doesn't he? Mm. Um, so, yeah, may, maybe that's an angle on it. But, uh, but like I said, when Thiago's on, on fire, I, I'd be amazed... Would it be surprised even is if Thiago's injured for the World Cup? Even if he's not called up. Like he just picks up a knock like a week before, and Luis Enrique would be like, "Yeah, I told you so." There was some stat about Coke going around the other night. I might get this completely wrong and make a tit of myself here, but make a tit of bumble of myself here. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it was something like he's never scored an international goal for Spain, or he's never scored a competitive goal for Spain, or something like that. Coke, really? Yeah. How many games? Quite a lot. I think he made his debut in like 2010 or something. Yeah. To be fair, never really. I mean, I know is he's he, not. Is he a big goal scorer big for goal sc- Madrid, though? Not, re- ah, not really, I guess. But you think at some point he would have uh, found the net, wouldn't you? But yeah, he's closer to the goal than you know probably six other players on the pitch. Yeah, so yeah. chances dictate you would. I might be wrong about that anyway. I can't be bothered looking it up at this point. But uh, <laughs> if I am wrong, feel free to let me know. This, <laughs> this is the one football podcast home of made up facts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, why not make it the home of conspiracy theories as well? I'm going to say that because Thiago left Barcelona in 2013, with Luis Enrique arriving at Barcelona manager in 2014, doesn't trust him, thought, you know, this guy left Barcelona for Bayern Munich, terrible, terrible Spanish player. I'm never putting him in my Spanish squad. Maybe he's doing it to spite Pep. You've started something, Thomas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we've touched on the the form of Brazil and Argentina a little bit in recent weeks as well. They uh, they both won uh, this week, uh, only friendlies. I mean, Argentina played Jamaica, uh, Brazil played Tunisia. Both looking pretty good, though. Would you say they're possible World Cup favourites, possibly the, the strongest, most informed international teams in the world at the moment, Thomas? Oh, you'd have to say so, especially considering the abundance of riches they have in the teams. And both of them have two talismanic players in Lionel Messi and, and Neymar. I mean, I wouldn't read too much into these international friendlies. Ghana and Tunisia, for example, I think are two of the weaker CAF teams to have qualified for the World Cup. I mean, Senegal have uh, just a better team in general. Morocco had a harder path through to the top. And then Cameroon had to get past the Ivory Coast in the, in the sort of group stage as well. So, I mean, I don't think it was that hard of a test, and especially when you consider Thomas Partey was out of action for Ghana. But, you know, there's just, there's just so many options. There are so many options, and they just seem to be clicking at the moment. And, you know, Brazil beforehand, especially when you think back to the, the, the thumping at the uh, 2014 World Cup with... Mm-hmm. Um, with with Germany, pardon me, it felt like it was all about Neymar. Can Neymar do this? What can Neymar do? Whereas now it's like, well, you know, Richarlison is there and Matt put a great video out on the One Football app the other day looking at sort of the attacking options that Brazil have. And don't you think I didn't notice that you put Gabriel Jesus in the last lineup? We'll see how that happens later this year. Well, we'll no, I, I started with the ones that were in the squad and then just kind of worked my way down. I forgot about Martinelli as well, but he's injured. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't think I don't think he's going to make the squad. To be fair, no. um, but um, but yeah, I mean, like they've got an array of attacking talent, and you just look at the goals, and they've they've been really nicely spread out amongst the attacking players. And Neymar is happy to play a little bit of a, a playmaker role, perhaps in a way that he he wasn't doing before. I mean, when you had the likes of Fred and stuff playing up front with this this great array of a talent around the Brazilian squad. Now you've got Richarlison, Gabriel Jesus, even Pedro, who got his first call up from Flamengo, that uh, Diego, um, the iconic Flamengo midfielder, compared to Lewandowski in terms of his playing style and that sort of <coughs> calibre he brings up front. So, yeah, I think Brazil are a real, real threat and Argentina just are Argentina, aren't they? They just <laughs> seem to, every time you think, oh, well, the passing of the guard, Di Maria and stuff, they're getting old, it's going to change. And it's like, no, here's an abundance of new players and they've got that, they've got that bite to them mm. as well, haven't they? That it's just like, you just, you don't want to come up against them in a competitive game. Yeah. It's funny you say about Gabriel Jesus, actually, because I think like, you know, the form that he's been in for Arsenal at the start of the season and the way he's been playing for City before that, you think it's crazy that you can't, you know, get a call up. And I think uh, Teach, the, the Brazil coach, said he, the door's not closed. There's still every chance he'll be in the squad or whatever. But it is funny how players sometimes have difficulty transferring that form to the international stage because I don't think Gabriel Jesus has ever really done it in a Brazil shirt. I think it's been a bit of a source of frustration for them and Brazilians don't actually rate him that highly at all, really. So... Yeah, you'd like to think that uh, his form for Arsenal will get him back into that squad and he'll, he'll make a dent at the World Cup, but it's weird. Well, the, yeah, one of the issues there is that um, he played up front in like the last tournament he played for Brazil and, and kind of blanked, right? So mm. he sort of developed that reputation. That's when he kind of got ushered out onto the wing and then he was struggling to get into the Manchester City squad. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's been a couple of turbulent years for him in terms of where he his own like brand identity is as a footballer and where he finds himself best on the pitch. And understanding amongst the sort of Arsenal bloggers and podcasters I listen to, especially the likes of like Tim Stillman, who are connected with like the sort of Brazilian side of things is that he has he has a foot in the door at the moment if the form continues just because of his versatility across the front line and and how well it does know him but yeah you're absolutely right I mean he does have a little bit of a point point to prove now especially after the the form that Richarlison showed in that forward position during this international break yeah if Brazil and Argentina were to meet at the World Cup Matt who would you have your money on winning that game oh that's a That'd be the final to end all finals. Really. <laughs> uh, no, actually, Argentina Portugal would be just for the Messi Ronaldo story. But Argentina Brazil <laughs> would be equally fascinating. Yeah, they're not getting there. Um, uh, I'd I'd still go Brazil. I know we spoke about this on Monday. That, that why they're mm. my favourites, and yeah, obviously, you know, Thomas alluded to that video. So many attacking options. I just think Brazil have a starting eleven plus about eight game changers on the bench. <laughs> So like there isn't a game that's too difficult for them to change, I don't think. So yeah, I'd go. And, and their defensive options as well, which has been mm-hmm. a little bit of a change in recent years. They've got some really, really solid defensive options and two fantastic goalkeepers. Yeah, yeah, that's ridiculous as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you would say that about Argentina. To be honest, I don't think their defensive options or goalkeeping options are too yeah, strong. Emi Martinez massively overrated. Never liked him. <laughs> Christian Romero is the best centre-back in Europe, but apart from that... <laughs> He's not even the best centre-back in North London, mate. 
Hold your horses. We'll get on to that. <laughs> well, we're, get, we're getting closer. Let's just uh, let's touch on a bit of uh, North American soccer because you are our man on the ground in Canada, Thomas. Uh, I want to talk about the United States men's national team as apparently we're supposed to call them at every opportunity. It's a bit of a mouthful to me, but... Uh, USMNT. That, USMNT, USMNT, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they are performing really poorly. I, I follow quite a lot of uh, American soccer people on Twitter and they, they were, have been really upset with the way they played against uh, against Saudi Arabia and Japan in the last couple of games. Greg Berhalter, the coach, is coming under a bit of fire. Is uh, I mean, I'd imagine he'll keep his job for the World Cup, but what's going wrong with them, do you think? Well, I think one of the fundamental issues, a little bit like we're looking at England at the moment, is there's an array of attacking talent and it's just not being put into a, into a, into a formation, into a tactical shape that can allow for it to thrive. I mean, Rayner picked up what seems like another injury. I mean, he came off in the second game after about 30 minutes. It's set a precaution, obviously. We'll sort of see how that goes. Borussia Dortmund will let us know, I'm sure. But, you know, then you've got Pulisic who came back in and after barely any shots against Japan, they got seven shots, four on target in the second game against Saudi Arabia, who, by the way, have pumped millions, millions of dollars into producing better youth. And that is starting to show um, in in terms of their their team, so that's not to take anything away from them. But I think the most concerning thing that I'm seeing and hearing on this side, from the coaching point of view, is the comments post match. It really is just like, oh, I'm happy with the way we're playing. I just didn't like the execution. And everyone's <laughs> like, what are you, what game are you watching? <laughs> like, how how are you content with what you're watching here? And not only the words, but it's the the emotion behind it and. People feel like maybe there's a lack of passion. He can't, a little bit like Matt alluded to with Gareth Southgate earlier. It's like, are, you, are we playing for Southgate here? Are they playing mm. for Elta? Are they? Because the players, they, they don't look up for it in the slightest. It's not like they're, they're in, it's not like they're, they're nil-nil and they're like, you know what? He's inspired us. He's pushing us. You know, in that typical, stereotypical way in which North Americans, especially in the United States, you think about football, basketball, um, yeah, um, hockey as well, how like emotive it is, the cliches of the cheesy, um, coaches going on these like I've seen rates. Space Jam <laughs> yeah exactly exactly Friday Night Lights Space Jam yeah. the vibes you know the North American vibes where are they uh, so yeah they're, they're not really present but I think one of the other things that everyone's trying to contextualize is after the bitter disappointment of missing out on the 2018 World Cup USA are back in they're back in a World Cup this year before hosting in 2026 and that that is the key thing to focus on but yes you're absolutely right this performance at the world cup and how well the players perform not just in terms of like results it's just like what are you going to give on the pitch what are you going to show us and yeah it could very much spell the end of uh of Berotta's, um tenure at the yeah. top of the game for them do, do you think they the u.s needs a good men's national team for soccer to sort of reach the next level in that country or is it kind of irrelevant are they a bit more interested in the european club game anyway than they they are in sort of the, their own domestic football it's definitely growing. And I mean, like at the end of the day, uh, I was chatting my father about this not too long ago about the sort of like the growth of the WSL in the UK, in the UK at the moment, and how it's not really taking away fans from the, the men's game. It's a different kind of supporting of the most popular sport in the world, which is actually posing a bit more of a threat to spectators in sports such as cricket and rugby, because now the family days out can go and support something else. And it's not coming with that baggage of football supporter like culture that maybe some people can be a little bit turned off by. In the same way, when you make a comparison to North America, 
you know, soccer's not bringing over your NHL, NBA and NFL fans. That's 100 years of legacy supporting right there. But what they are doing is they're touching in with expats, first and second generation immigrants that already have an affiliation towards the game. There's been modifications to the MLS style of play, especially with like penalties. You know, they used to do the hockey style <laughs> run up and Bring shoot, that back. I, love that. Oh, I always I love want it. that to come back. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I mean, they, things like that, that North Americanization of the game in some aspects is good because you've got the tie in like European football and South American football isn't exactly the same there are some modifications there but there are other things that sort of stay in line with one another so that when you compete against someone from somewhere else you're kind of playing along the same bloody rules um <laughs> so once they made a modification with that in the early 2000s and I mean you look at the MLS it is going from strength to strength at the moment bringing over obviously some some older star players helped with its popularity rise but I mean, you've got a few teams that struggle to fill out their stadiums, but otherwise you're getting 20,000, 30,000 people watching soccer. Um, it is on the up. Most definitely, we're even seeing that north of the border in Canada, which we can touch on in a second. But I, I think you're right in terms of the, the how well the U.S. national team do is vital in terms of propelling the sport to the next level mm -hmm. because Americans are so patriotic that they will get behind a team if it looks like they're gonna be gonna be doing well, and like the community is growing, they just now need a wider audience. Yeah, and uh, and of course the next World Cup is is going to be held in the United States and, and Canada, isn't it? So that's uh, it's all sort of building towards that. And yeah, what about the Canadian exactly. national team then? Because they they played a couple of friendlies this week. They they lost to uh, sorry they lost to Uruguay. They beat Qatar, didn't they? Uh, are they feeling optimistic? A kind of their first World Cup in was it forty years? Like 36, 36, 36 yeah. yeah, very close. 1986 was the last time the team qualified. Um, I wouldn't say optimistic, but excited, most definitely. I mean, the, the Canadian soccer program is four years ahead of schedule. The whole idea was get a team ready and in place to compete in 2026. And what John Erdman, the Geordie for over, over yeah. this side of the world, has managed to do with this program is fantastic. And we talk about the USA here at the moment and the lack of passion that you maybe see amongst the players and, and from the coach, that's a complete 180 with Canada. The man is like Mikel Arteta on the sideline. He's always <laughs> outside of his technical box. He's always shouting to his screen. You can hear it. Obviously, we play in some more emptier stadiums around the world. So you can really hear his his passionate bellows. And it's a team of collectives, despite the fact that there are some like fantastic individual talent, Alfonso Davies being the, the key man amongst that. And what you'll notice if you watch some of the games is the left back, left wing back for Bayern Munich is not a left wing back, left wing back for mm -hmm. left back for uh, Canada. He plays in more like the Thomas Muller free roaming attacking role oh, wow. is what we've and one of the great things we saw from this international window is a we beat Qatar so we're not the worst team <laughs> really important point uh, and b the against Uruguay we attacked them we didn't sit backs we actually played football played the exact same style of football that got us through the CONCACAF qualifying and into the World Cup this year as well so um, really really positive to see that John Herman's going to you know, to continue with that style. It was a little bit of naivete in the sense that I feel like the midfield pressed the Uruguay midfield how they would in CONCACAF and, you know, probably regain possession three, four out of five or six times. Um, but against Uruguay with the likes of Bentancur and Valverde, they just got passed around. So hopefully John Herman's going to pick up on that mm. and make some modifications. And the big thing I'm excited to see here is, you know, how John Herman gets perceived on the international stage once the, the global eyes are on him for a few games, because I really think he's a great up-and-coming manager. He's done a fantastic job with the Canada soccer program here. 
uh, on the field. As I said, jumped the gun a little bit by four years. So there are there are some there are some issues off the field. Let's just say in terms of mm-hmm. Canada soccer, the governing body maybe lagging behind in terms of its infrastructure and we all know about the fact that Canada are the only team in the World Cup to not get a new jersey either um, for it because no one was prepared for us to make it Um, (laughs) so no one actually had the foresight to potentially begin those conversations to get kit made but yeah no I wouldn't say optimism but but sheer excitement at the fact that it's the first World Cup in 36 years it's four years ahead of schedule and you know the team are going to play their exciting brand of football whether it means they lose 3-0 or win 1-0 so I think they're going to be I really think they'll be the sort of sweetheart team for a lot of people this year yeah looking forward to seeing them there Right, it's derby time. Before we get into the nitty-gritty, I've got a question for both of you. What What is England's best derby and why? Matt, I'll let you go first on that one. God, I mean, you can pick, you can pick your own question. derby if you want. I, I, I might even agree with you. Uh, so, so we're talking about local derbies, right? So not Liverpool, yeah. United or Liverpool. Can we, uh, by the way, can um, we clarify, is it England or Britain? So does like Scotland and Wales count? I was technically just going to stick to Britain, but if you want to go beyond that, uh, sorry, stick to England, but if you want to go widen the scope a little bit, then by all means. Uh, the thing is, it's too easy to pick Rangers Celtic if it's Britain, because mm. that definitely is the best. Um, yeah. England's best derby. Is, is it though, was... as, a, as a match to watch, as a spectacle? I know there's, there's the rivalry, there's the atmosphere and all yeah. that, but the quality isn't isn't as good as the North London derby is going to be this weekend, is it? It's just a no, fact. probably not. But no, it's not. But I, I, I think maybe that's a a byproduct of the Premier League having the players it does and the Scottish course, League having yeah. the playing the players it does. Um, but yeah, I would say, oh, tough one. I'm gonna go Spurs Arsenal as as the best derby. I think it has everything that other derbies don't necessarily. Um, I goals think from its history, <laughs> from goals, so the, the the entertainment in the matches, um, to both teams sort of recently competing on a very very similar level, um, which kind of makes it interesting. I think there's obviously the the history of of Arsenal moving in, into their territory and an actual sort of you know that's means for a gang war that is. Um, you know, they're both very successful over the course of history. I think the one thing you could argue is that um, Spurs aren't anywhere near as successful in the, in the you know the past 20 or 30 years as Arsenal. But if you were to use that as a leverage point, um, the Manchester City, Man United is out of the question because City win a different bloody division <laughs> to United. And with the amount of Premier Leagues that United have won, it's not even a comparison. You know, those two teams... I would say, aren't necessarily that close. Um, same thing with Liverpool-Everton. I mean, they both, you know, traded years of being brilliant back in the 70s and 80s. As as of recently, though, I mean... I'd say that's one of the worst so, derbies. It's it always is rubbish. so one-sided in Liverpool's favour. Um, the quality of the match always sees Everton every so often, you know grab some balls and spring a surprise, but very unlikely. Liverpool are streaks ahead in every sort of way. And I think, yeah, that Spurs and Arsenal are very similar in terms of their playing squad, in terms of their ambitions, where they are as clubs. I would say it probably makes it the best. And and the games are very, very entertaining. Mm. Thomas? There's my case for it. No, well, you see, the thing is, I, I would, it would, with the head, completely actually agree with Matt you know I mean as an Arsenal fan as well it's the one I consume the most you think back to you know Matt saying we're on very similar levels now but even even when Arsenal tended to finish above Spurs 
comfortably. I still remember famous five fours with the likes of Patrick Vieira and Loren scoring. Like even when it was considered Arsenal were the better team, Spurs turned up for it and there were goals. So for that reason, I do think it is one of the most thrilling derbies in in the Premier League in in Europe even. Um, but having lived in Wales for a little bit, I'm going to just put a little. <laughs> I'm going to put a little shout out there for Cardiff versus yeah. uh, Swansea. I, that is I a vicious rather... rivalry that people underestimate, I think, mm. isn't it? Yeah, Absolutely. they hate each other. And like, and like one of the, one of the greatest stories to come out from it was 1988, where Swansea fans literally corralled Cardiff fans into the Swansea Bay. They forced them into the ocean. <laughs> and like now, like there was uh, there was a famous picture of this uh, this older geezer turning up to one of the derby games in a mankini and armbands to like take the mick out of the Cardiff <laughs> fans who so can be ushered into the water. And John Joe Shelby on the defeat as well when he used to play because of course it would be John Joe Shelby uh, when he played for Swansea. The Cardiff lost. Uh, Cardiff won the game, pardon me, and he, uh, as all the Swansea players went over to the away end to thank the Swansea fans for coming, Shelby went over to the Cardiff fans and made a swim away gesture, <laughs> which uh, which uh, was good. reported to the police by many, many Cardiff fans. the police? Well, well. So, yeah, <laughs> for inciting <laughs> violence. <laughs> I... I- I I always think, and this is probably definitely gonna gonna get a lot of hate. So yeah, you can you can tweet me some abuse. The better the atmosphere, or the fans, or the deeper the rivalry, the worse the football. Yeah, it can be the case. So yeah. like you you talk about all this funny nonsense off the pitch, but they're both second division teams. And they're both but, like, they're, but, they're, but therein lies the thing, right? In terms of a derby, like as a as a neutral spectator in like what mm. is now the 21st century global sport, is very different to what is considered like, you know, that home tribalistic element yeah, of it. Because exactly. for them, for them, it's the best day of the year. They don't give a shit what happens on the field. <laughs> you know, it's all about going there. And like, I bet half of them don't even watch the game. It's all just spent throwing abuse at someone mm. else in different mm. colours. And you know, that is potentially a negative aspect of football culture but i kind of love it <laughs> yeah it, it, don't get me wrong, it's really entertaining i feel the same yeah. about you know spurs arsenal and i think the main problem for this is the premier league like it's just that's just the way that's what it's like going to a premier league football match mm-hmm. i mean every single time right you look on on, on social media uh, we 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 often do it english football fans we absolutely marvel at what happens in turkey at what happens mm-hmm. in france and there's flares galore and you know mm-hmm. in belgium a few years ago there was that liege anderlecht game where they had a welcome back for stefan defoe and they had him sort of Top, uh, uh, topless, uh, without his head or hanging from a noose or something, and everyone goes, "Wow, that looks the mental!" Tifos, I've got to, yeah, yeah. yeah, I've yeah, the tifo. I've got to go to the Istanbul derby. As soon as it happens in England, right, Richarlison picks up a flare and gets banned. Yeah. <laughs> we, it's quite sanitised, isn't it, comparatively? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and the Crystal Premier League Palace. has created that culture. Yeah, and Crystal Palace in the first game of the season this year when they had like the wonderful literal Crystal Palace TIFO mm. at Selhurst Park, and everyone was just like, oh, lame, lame. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. trying to do it. <laughs> like, that, that's why I think that when it comes to the fan stuff, like now, Tottenham Arsenal is a great game, but everyone just sort of is there for the football. We're talking about the quality I'm of all football. About, like, I'm all about the great game though, personally. Like that's, that's what I'm in, in, in yeah. it for. Yeah. And I think exactly. Tottenham Arsenal is always an entertainment game, always an entertaining game, always great entertainment mm. value. I think the Manchester derby was the best derby in England for about four years, five years between about 2010, 2014, when, mm. when City were on the up and United were sort of competing with them for the first time. Um, the problem is since then, City have been above United and previous to that, 
City have been way below United. So it's it's kind of rare that they've been on a bit of an even keel. And I think that does make a difference. And you know, when City United were going for the titles together, it was it was uh, it was great. I mean, but Arsenal and Spurs yeah. have been on an even keel for quite a while, haven't they? Now, so that's why it's that's kind of, why it always kind of means something to both teams mm-hmm. in terms of the league table and stuff like that. Whereas, I, and I like watching derby games, but like we said, Liverpool Everton, I cannot watch. Mm. It, yeah. it just the amount of nil nils in that match, especially at Goodison Park. Oh my god! I always watch. It, I'm and always like, excited for it, and, and I'm always disappointed by it. Yeah. Yeah, oh, I don't bother it's, it's not even like there's an abundance of chances and like a couple of handbags being thrown. It's just like tepid. Oh, this the yeah. one this season was not a boring nil nil. To be fair, though, that was a, that was a very good one. But, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be and, and just to, yeah, just quickly on that supporters culture thing as well. I think like that is because we were talking about USA there, Dan. You asked me earlier. Um, and a big thing is here, like the Euro snobs, the number of people who are just like, I don't care about North American soccer because mm-hmm. it's nowhere near the quality of home. So like we're trying to veer more towards the supporter side here to try and bring that love of the game mm-hmm. because the quality in Europe now and the ex- the mass like global export of TV rights means that, you know, it's just so easy to go, why the hell would I go and watch the yeah. Seattle Sounders when I can get up at 9am and watch Tottenham Arsenal? Because you're right, the quality in the Premier League is just incredible. Well, there's uh, there's El Trafico, isn't there, and the Hudson River Derby and all that in MLS. So that's uh, the, 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 ca- the Califor- California Classico as well. Oh, God, <laughs> that's funny. Well, yeah, I'm flying over for the for the Manchester Derby this weekend. So if I go overboard and get arrested now, I'm going to blame you two for egging me on. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's all right, we'll do Otherwise, it wasn't a derby. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. It wasn't a derby if you haven't got arrested, Dan. <laughs> make, make, make Dan's one phone call from jail the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to yeah, make yeah. it a short one probably, but yeah. <laughs> we will say that Dan isn't going to get arrested. You genuinely are off on Monday, right? I am off on Monday, yeah, yeah. But okay, that okay. Might, just, just, I just, may just or may not have been arrested, though. That's the, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We'll keep him guessing. I guess you'll never know. Yeah, exactly. find out. <laughs> Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about this weekend's North London derby now. Then, how are our Arsenal fans feeling going into this game, Thomas? I would imagine pretty confident being the home team, being top of the league. Yeah, I mean, I think there's just an air of confidence around the club at the moment, around the team, and around, as Mikel Arteta would say, the projects. Um, <laughs> you know, it's starting to bear some fruits. The interesting thing that I already find about, and again, it's early days, right? And I mean, I kind of felt this way about the North London derby at the Emirates at the start of last season, which is a complete flip to when it was obviously towards the end of the season and the massive repercussions that had is that I don't really see this game as having big repercussions on our season. Um, I think Arsenal with the way we're playing and what we're showing, like I'm confident that we're going to go out there and we're going to control the ball and we're going to play our football. If Spurs catch us on the break and beat us, then they've caught us on the break and beat us and we've got to learn how to deal with that a little bit better. But I'm really confident in the football Arsenal are playing at the moment and regardless of the score, I'm just, I have faith and I think a lot of Arsenal fans and the feeling around the club at the moment is, you know, a game against Spurs at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or the Emirates Stadium is not going to define our season like it did last year. We're in control of our destiny because we're going to win all the other games we need to win. Yeah. And for Spurs, Matt, I mean, you're generally... You're insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> Shots fired. You're generally pretty pessimistic when it comes to Spurs, Matt, and I get the impression that you're quite pessimistic when it comes to derby matches as well. Are you looking forward to this one or not? Um, I'm not actually pessimistic normally, but around the big games I am, and I'm pessimistic because it's Tottenham away at Arsenal. It's the away team in a North London derby. It's just like the other way around, mate. I'd be big cigar, feet up, chilling. Arsenal aren't going to win at Tottenham. Do me a favour. and We're not going to win at Arsenal. It's just... 
What's the record like for away goes. teams in that fixture? They're the last, the remember, last team, yeah. the last team to win the North London derby away from home was Arsenal in 2014. Rosicky scored uh, in, in a, the first few minutes. Oh, I think a great that was, goal. That was a nice goal. That was a nice goal. And I think I think that was April 2014. So we're looking at we're verging on the ninth season now. So that's at least 16 games and the away team just cannot win. This is what I mean about Spurs and Arsenal being too similar. Neither of them have got the minerals, have got the bottle <laughs> to turn up to an away game and win. Neither of them do. Spurs Spurs cave in like I've never seen a team cave in at the Emirates and, uh, and Arsenal are the same. It's like the back end of last season. We were talking about this with Lewis, who's obviously a big Arsenal fan in the office in the One Football Newsroom. Who, who's getting married I, tomorrow, by the way, who, who, on Saturday, sorry, while the game is going on. While the game is going on, getting he's married, getting married. Yeah. The game how, going how bad on. is um, that timing? <laughs> why? And, and why? We were, like, that's chancing fate. I think they booked yeah, it before the ridiculous. fixtures came out, to be fair, but yeah. yeah. Are you changing? Get, um, get married on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have this to worry about, do you? They... Uh, Anyway, yeah, so we were talking about the game at the back end of last season and I was like, you're going to lose. So what are you on about? You're, it's Arsenal going to Tottenham. You're going to lose and then you haven't got the minerals to pick yourself up <laughs> and go to Newcastle and win on a Monday night either. And you didn't. It's, uh, for me, North London derbies are black and white. The away team does not win. You're lucky to get away with a draw. So that's why I'm very pessimistic about this weekend because it's just. <laughs> and when we when we talk about me. when we talk about fan culture around it as well, I mean, like you don't hear the Emirates Stadium. The Emirates Stadium atmosphere has gotten a lot better in the last couple of years, of course, as the connection with the club has increased. But you don't hear it louder than on Derby Day. And I mean, I remember watching the North London Derby at on TV at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium last year, and like the thunderous noise from the Tottenham crowd every time like holding went into Son for the first 12 and a half seconds before he got sent <laughs> off um where it's just like you know like that that sort of like tribalistic again animalistic support as Matt says I mean the the home stadiums in this derby play play a big fit play a big piece mm-hmm. and that is down that's down to the supporters which can never forget the good 12th man yeah so what is the injury situation for this one because I heard that Hugo Lloris might be out that's pretty massive oh, for Spurs yeah yeah, Hugo Lloris has picked up a hamstring injury, which is um, which is very very big. Like I, I don't want to like shit on Spurs as second goalie Fraser Forster already, but the drop off in quality from Larissa Forster is astonishing. Yeah. Uh, that's massive drop in quality. Um, Kulusevski's you know come back injured against Arsenal, though. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. Um, Kulusevski's injured, which is a big deal because he's a quality player for Spurs, although hasn't really been in the starting lineup in the past few weeks. Um, so I'm not sure how much of a big issue that will be for Conte for the starting eleven. Um, so yeah, that's also yeah. It, ma- a it bit makes of a because I was going to ask you about the selection dilemma. You know, with, yeah. with Son scoring the hat trick and Richarlison in good form, I guess that solves it for him, doesn't it? If Kulusevski's yeah, injured, yeah, that 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 solves it. So I, I don't think that's a bigger. It's obviously a big miss because he's a good player, but I don't think that's like oh my god, that the headline missing. Um, and then, yeah, from Arsenal's side, I think Kieran Tierney is going to be okay. But if he wasn't, that leaves him without a fullback because Suarez and Zinchenko are both injured. Isn't there some chat that Zinchenko might be fit now, though, Thomas? I heard that, that there's a bit of hope there. Well, Mikel Arteta loves to play the injury cards as close to his chest as possible. It's become sort of, it has honestly become like this reoccurring joke in the podcast sphere around Arsenal content creators, which is just like, 
no one has any idea what the squat is like in terms of returning fitness. So like we've got a few doubts. I mean, um, Emil Smith-Rowe got confirmed today. He's having surgery and he's going to be out until at least December. Mm -hmm. But then Kieran Tierney, Zinchenko, Takahiro Tomiyasu, uh, Thomas Partey are all sort of players that it's like, well, maybe they'll be fit. Maybe they won't be fit. <laughs> uh, and it's like, it, it's frustrating because I, I kind of want to know myself, but you can see, you can see why a modern manager in the modern day wouldn't. The one I'm biggest, the biggest worry has to be Thomas Partey, though. We're a fundamentally different side with him at the base of the midfield, which is a real worry considering his fitness record at the moment. And that's something I think is the key area we need to identify in the transfer market in January as well. But, um, you know, he is just so instrumental in the way we, we, build up and, and break lines in terms of like the transition when we get the ball back close to our box. Um, so yeah, a few, a few injury concerns, um, but you know, uh, we'll, we'll kind of not know until an hour before kickoff on Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Let's have your, uh, let's have a score prediction from you both. And I want this score prediction to come from your head. I don't care about your emotional feelings towards this game. What do you actually think is going to happen? Matt, you can go first in. So you think Spurs are going to lose, presumably? Well, yeah, that's the thing. My my head and every sort of previous history goes 3-1 Arsenal. Um, uh, My heart to try and be optimistic says a a one-all or a two-all draw, like a win's at the question. Um, But yeah, 3-1 Arsenal, probably. Thomas? The head says 2-1, the heart says (laughs) 4-0. I, uh, I think if Tommy, if, if both if, both if, Arsenal if, wins, presumably, of course, of course. <laughs> if I, if if Partey's back, I just I honestly think that you know, as as we know with Spurs, if you can neutralise Kane dropping deep, then you break off a lot of their ability to catch you quickly on transition. Uh, Son has not obviously reached the heights of previous years yet this year, but obviously, as you just said, the uh, the hat trick on the international break could change things um, and. You know, uh, he he's always going to be a dangerous player, no matter what. But uh, you know, I'm 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 confident ahead of it. Um, Mikel Arteta, if you're going to repeat the same mistake against Tottenham Hotspur three years in a row, then you know Einstein's definition of insanity. I've got <laughs> I've got total faith that Conte's system has been sussed out. If you, all you have to do is watch the Chelsea game tape, and you know we've actually got finishers in our team. Yeah, well, I'm going to back Spurs then. In that case, I'm going to say two-one Spurs. And if it happens, then Dude. maybe I should, maybe should put some money on it because the odds are probably going to be quite long, aren't they? Given, yeah. uh, <laughs> let's really, excuse me. Let's finish with the. <laughs> God, I'm already spending my winnings there. Let's finish the, with the uh, <laughs> the Manchester derby, which is taking place. Clearly emotional. Yeah, but I'm ch- getting choked derby. up about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I'm getting choked up thinking about Alfinger Harland's knee because uh, you know I was. I was at Old Trafford when that happened in uh, a- April 2001, when Roy Keane cruelly ended his career. His son is playing for City this weekend, 20 years, over, just over 20 years later. Do you think revenge is going to be on Erling's mind or do you think he won't really care about that? Uh, I, I mean, what, as in he's going to go all the way up to the studio to Roy Keane? Well, but who knows, yeah? <laughs> Imagine that. I'd, he I'd love to goal, see it, runs yeah. all the way up to the Sky Studio, <laughs> just twats Keane and runs back get on Roy Ke- Get Roy Keane pitch side before, uh, before yeah. the game during the warm-up. You know Joe Hart kicking the ball at the uh, at the TV presenter yeah. instead of Harlan going straight just through Harlan He's, it, Alvig has been preparing his son for this day for, you know, 21 years. Now he just <laughs> it's the only reason he exists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Basement shrine. Yeah. <laughs> to exact family revenge. No, I think uh, revenge or not, uh, Haaland's a ridiculous footballer. So chances he's scoring, whether it was the Manchester derby or not, are very high. Um, 
but yeah, I think this one will be particularly sweet for him if he does manage to score and win. And I'm, I'm assuming his dad will be there watching. Or I would imagine. Maybe, so, does he yeah. go in with the with the the city away fans? I feel like that's. He, he did once. Really. He did at the start of the season, yeah. But then he, he sits at, yeah. in, in a box at the uh, the home games. I think, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Wow. I mean, the Harlem factor could be interesting in terms of how United approach this game, I think, because United have had some some success at the Etihad in recent years by playing a kind of counter-attacking football, luring City in, hitting them on the break. Um, they've had some success with that this season, you know, against Arsenal, that was kind of the game plan. Against Liverpool, that was kind of the game plan. Does that still work against a team that have got such a goal threat as Harland up front, Thomas, or is that a worry that City might be able to find a way around that this time? No, I mean, the whole idea of the counter-attacking football is if you can neutralise that threat. And by neutralise, I mean hold it at bay for as long as humanly possible. <laughs> I mean, look, Norway just blanked and Haaland didn't mm. score. I think that's like one of the first games this season where he hasn't contributed a goal in. So, yeah. you know, Haaland clearly in a terrible run of form at the moment. He's low on confidence. He's never going to threaten the likes of the right. No, just kidding, of course. He's going <laughs> to absolutely terrorise that Manchester United defence. Um, but as you said, like... Him, him up against Lisandro Martinez is a bit of a uh, mismatch in terms of stature, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, but one of the great things we spoke about about Haaland before is his constant movement in the box. He's always moving. And as you say, you can't stick a Varane, a Maguire, if he was fit, someone that you think can physically take him. Because one minute he's going to be on Luke Shaw's back and the next minute he'll be climbing, leapfrogging over Lissandro Martinez. You know, so that that is a big threat. But I think for Manchester United's style of play and going forward in the counter-attack, not having... Marcus Rashford, whose form has mm. been a lot better this year. I mean, they're going to be very reliant on quick players getting in behind. And we all know Anthony's trick is to get the ball in behind the defence and cut back on his left foot after all the defenders arrived, Dalla Nicolas Pepe. So um, I don't think he's going to pose that much of a threat. They've just got to find that Rashford alternative. Yeah, and that Rashford alternative. Alanga, perhaps. Presumably isn't Cristiano Ronaldo, Matt? Uh, probably not. That would be a bad idea to play so him, which yeah. seems a bit weird to say, and I don't want to say that because it's tempting fate and he'll probably score a hat-trick now. Well, you've but... done it now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All who, right, um, who, who's going who's gonna to start in the heart of defence for, for you guys? Um, uh, I would imagine Diaz and Akanji. Stones is injured. Okay. Laporte's only just come back. Akanji's looked pretty good since he came in, so I would imagine it'll be those two. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Let's have a score prediction on this one, then I'll go first. I'm going to go for a 3-2 City win. Thomas, for you? I'm going to go 3-1 to City. I don't think, or maybe even 3-0, to be honest. I don't see Manchester United finding the back of the net. I'm going to go 4-1 City. Oh, I hope you're both right there. Well. I, hope you're both right. <laughs> I would enjoy that very much. And uh, yeah, maybe I would get arrested if that happened. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that will do us on this episode of the One Football Podcast. Uh, thank you to Thomas and Matt for joining me. As Matt mentioned, I won't be here on Monday because I'll be in jail. Uh, but Matt will be here doing a podcast. I shall. <laughs> He'll be reviewing all the weekend's action. If you want to get a question into us in the meantime, it's podcast at onefootball.com on the emails. It's Fussball Dan on Twitter. It's Matt underscore Frolic on Twitter. I won't ask you to say your handle again, Thomas, because it was too complicated. People just <laughs> people just Google you. It's easy enough, I guess, yeah. I'm the only person with my last name, so find me. There you go. There you go. All right. Cheers. See you next time.